Hey, Nancy. How are you? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 not right now. I'll I'll try to I'll try to project myself more. That is true. Yep, I can. Yep. Try to yeah. Try to speak a little louder. Yep. Understood. Yep. We'll make it work. Yeah, it's been a very interesting study. We'll we have a lot to, to go through today. Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started. We don't have power this morning, so I'm gonna try to project myself as best I can. We don't have sound, so bear with me. Tell me to speak up if I need to, if I'm not speaking loud enough. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. We pray that you would bless our worship today, Father, in our discussion in the book of Daniel. We pray that it would honor you and that your people would be edified and we would grow in our walk with you and, and grow in our glorification of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive into the book of Daniel this morning. Um, just a quick note on some sources. I, I like to mention sources that I use um, partly because it, it might be helpful to others who may want to do further study. Um, so a couple of the textbooks that we use for this study, uh, Daniel by Todd Wilson, a 12-week study, and then Daniel Faith Enduring Through Adversity. Uh, these are kind of more like Bible study booklets, but they were helpful in my own study. Uh, John Gill's Bible Commentary and also Matthew Henry. Bible commentary were helpful uh, in the study as well. But just a little bit of an overview, an introduction of the book itself. Uh, who was the character Daniel? Uh, Daniel was one of many Jews who were exiled along with the rest of Israel for their disobedience to God and breaking his covenant. God was faithful to his people even in the midst um, of this time. Um, but we see Daniel being faithful to God even in the midst of the pagan world that he found himself in. Uh, even with the clear and present danger of death for not uh, you know, obeying the kings that he served. So we see God's covenant faithfulness to his people, but we also see uh, the character of Daniel shining forth uh, even in the midst of a pagan land. Um, some major themes that we find in the book. Um, God's sovereignty is probably one, one of, if not the biggest overarching theme in the book that we find. Um, and we'll dive into that principle very quickly as we get into chapter 1. But we also see God revealing redemptive history to Daniel. We see that Daniel is also a book of visions. Um, chapters 7 through 12 um, are apocalyptic in nature. Um, so we see certain shadowing, foreshadowing of Christ, uh, you know, where it talks in Daniel 7 about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. That's from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus would quote this when he was before Caiaphas, the high priest, applying it to himself. And Caiaphas tore his clothes because... Jesus was clearly applying deity to himself. So we see allusions to, um, to Christ in this book uh, as well. It's also interesting to note that some of the book was written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. 
um, which implies that some of these things in the book may not merely be about Jewish matters. So there may have been aspects of the book that were uh, applying to a greater audience rather than just simply a Jewish audience. And then briefly on the historical setting. So uh, Israel went into exile in 605 BC to the third year of King Cyrus at 536 BC. So about 70 years, the people of Israel were in exile and a good portion of Daniel's life. So Daniel would have been taken away at a very young age and probably did not know much about the place where he came from. So he grew up in the Chaldean or the Babylonian culture and had to you know, struggle with those um, identities, serving a pagan king while also remaining faithful to God. So we're going to go ahead and dive into our chapter. So if you turn over to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, we'll read the first two verses. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasures of the house of his God. So immediately we see uh, a very grim outlook on the people of Israel. Uh, there, there's, uh, it, it starts off with judgment. The covenant people of God are being thrown in even more judgment. Now this is nothing new. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again judgment being brought upon the people of Israel. But this is the first time that we see uh, the people of Israel being exiled. But we do see very early on they were unfaithful to God's covenant, Exodus 32, uh, where we see very early on the people of Israel, not long after they were taken out of Egypt, they were already worshiping false gods. They were already trying to make God in their own image, violating the second commandment. You can see this Exodus 32, 26 through 28. Um, I'll just read some of this real quick. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3000 men of the people fell that day. So very early on, God was punishing his people, disciplining his people because they were stiff necked and would not listen to the commands that God had given them. So at this point, we see an even greater punishment being laid upon the people of Israel with exile, not just uh, punishment internally, but a pagan nation coming against them and overthrowing them. Now, a little bit about God's sovereignty here. We, we see this very early on here where it talks about God giving the people of Israel into the hands of their enemy. It says that God did this. And this might seem like an, an insignificant passage. I think these are types of passages that we might breeze over as we're reading texts. But it's full of theological truth uh, as it relates to who God is in his providence. Um, and it's giving us a glimpse into the working of God in all things. It says that he was active in bringing this judgment to pass. God was not passive in this. He didn't just let it happen. He didn't let it happen. It says he gave them into uh, the hands of their enemies. 
So what, does this, what are the implications of this um, for God's providence in general? Does God control all things? And we would say, as Reformed Christians, absolutely yes. Our confession says this, uh, chapter 5, paragraph 1. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge in the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So we see in our own confession, talking about God's providence over all things, there's nothing that's outside of his control, even the giving of his covenant people into a pagan nation. We also see this principle in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 27 through 28. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So this is Paul's conversation on Mars Hill with the philosophers of his day, the thinkers of his day who were discussing different uh, philosophical positions. And then Paul comes along and brings the Christian message to them and gives them a metaphysical and hermeneutical understanding of how to, to look at the world around them, that God has made all things, that all things come from God. And then he says something very interesting here. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And this is actually a quote from uh, a pagan philosopher, uh, Epimenides. It's a quote from a pagan philosopher slash poet. So Paul is taking uh, concepts from Greek philosophy and applying them to God and saying that these principles um, are true. But what he's saying here, in him we live and move and have our being, is about us living and moving in God. We don't move and exist apart from God. There is no self-movement or self-existence in creation outside of God's control and his upholding power. If there is any sense where I can move and exist apart from God, then I am like God with the ability to create things of myself. And this would be making the creature like the creator. Look on over at Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. And this is a little bit more applicable to uh, what we're talking about in Daniel here, but following the same principle in Acts 17. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an unholy nation, and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Shall, and, the, and then jump down to verse 15. Shall the axe boast against itself, boast itself against him who chops it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it, as if the rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood? So this is much more applicable uh, in terms of that it applies specifically to the judgment of the people of Israel, similar to what we see here in Daniel. But this time it's the Assyrians that are 
the rod of, of God's judgment, not the Babylonians. But the, the principle is there that God is raising up a pagan nation to judge the people of Israel. But you see a couple things going on here. You see God raising up the, peop- the, the Assyrians to uh, attack the people of Israel. But you also see the different intention of the Assyrians. It says they don't intend to do what God wants them to do, right? They're not intending to judge the people of Israel because of the reasons that God is doing it. They're doing it for greedy spoil. They're doing it for wicked desires. And so God holds them accountable for those desires. Yet they are still a tool in God's hand. In the examples that God uses here, the saw, the rod, and the staff, He's talking about the nature of these things. Can a rod pick itself up and swing itself? Or can an axe cut down a tree by itself? No, it it needs an external agent to move that axe to hit the tree, right? So that's what God is saying here, that the Assyrians can't do anything outside of God's operative power. They can't uh, even move against the people of Israel without God's control. And so that's what we see here um, in Daniel. So we... I think it's very easy for us um, as Christians. We, we tend to say that God just lets things happen as if he's, ver- he's passive in this world. God doesn't let things happen. Anything that happens comes to pass because of his providential power. Another thing that we see in, in uh, verse 2, something that we see in verse 2 of Daniel 1 We not only see God's judgment upon God's people, but we also see the pagans carrying away some of the articles of the house of God. So if it wasn't enough for the chosen people of Israel to be attacked by a pagan nation and taken away to a foreign land, God's house was desecrated. The worship of the people of Israel was ended. So much so that those holy articles that were there in the temple were taken away and used in the service of worshiping false gods. You've got to think of how humiliating that might have been for the people of Israel. Not only are they taken from their, uh, their precious land, but they are but the holy things in the temple that identify them as the, help to identify them as the people of God are taken away. We see this happening again uh, if you look over it in 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. So the enemies of the people of God tend to take away the holy things of the temple as part of their spoils of war, right? But it tends to not end up well for those pagan nations. We know from the Philistines, there were those that broke out in tumors or sores because of their wickedness. Um, And we see here with Dagon falling on his face before the ark. So God is showing his power over the uh, the pagan gods here and the people of the Philistines. Because uh, God will not be mocked when his worship is trifled with. So moving on in, in Daniel, uh, let's look at verse 3. Oh, there we go. What did you do? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we can use this now. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. All right, let's look at verse 3 of Daniel 1. Verses 3 through 7. Then the king instructed 
Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So the king of Babylon was not bent on wiping out the people of Israel, but he wanted to keep them in captivity and use them to further his own kingdom. And he saw potential for some of the men in his, uh, his kingdom. There were those, they were to study for three years. They were to serve the king after that time. So they were to learn the language. They were to learn the literature. They were to learn all these different things to prepare for service to the king. Now, Ashpenaz may have been something of a prime minister or some sort of leader of the eunuchs who would serve the king in various ways. So he was not just a mere lowly servant. He probably, uh, from what I gather, it seems that he is some sort of head of household, like a chief operating officer. He runs the king's affairs and makes sure that his household is in order, which would include those who serve before the king. So he was a trusted advisor of the king. Um, the, the, these men were also, the text says that they were, one of the qualifications is they were to be good-looking, so they were to provide a proper appearance for the court uh, when there are outsiders that visit, for instance. So perception was very key for the king of Babylon. Uh, how my, my servants look is a reflection upon my kingdom, so they had to look a certain way and not have any defilement. But the goal was to serve the king after this three-year educational period, and they would essentially be cultured uh, so they knew how to serve the king. So really to, to add to their injury of being not only taken away from their homeland and the worship of God being stopped, they had their names changed. So the Babylonians were trying to strip any identity of their Hebrew uh, nationalism from the people of Israel, at least from these servants. So they changed their names, which had to do with uh, with names that have to do with God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious to me. So their names showed who they identified with. They were identifying with God's chosen people. So if they took their names away, they were hoping that they could at least take some of their identity away. And really the names that they gave them had to do with their pagan gods. So it's replacing the God of Israel in their identity with the pagan gods of the Babylonians. So they were trying to humiliate them as much as possible. And I think it might have also been a way to show their place. You know, you are now mine. You're, I own you, right? We, as the Babylonians, we own you. Forget about where you came from. You're not going back there. I own you now. So you will identify with our pagan culture. Looking at verse 8. Looking at verse 8. Daniel 1 verse 8. Verses 8 through 16. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, 
I fear my Lord the King who has appointed your food and drink, and why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter, and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Uh, right off the bat here, it's interesting that the text continues to refer to Daniel and his friends by their Hebrew names. Even though their names have been changed by the pagans, the text wants us to understand that these people are still identifying with the people of God. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting note as we go by. The text continues to refer to them by their Hebrew names, and Daniel will continue to be Daniel throughout the book, um, except maybe in reference to um, discussing what the pagans are saying about him, because Daniel would continue to be Belteshazzar in his time in Babylon. Well, we kind of come to, it, the text seems to shef, shift pretty quickly here. It seems like maybe an odd section um, that Daniel is having to deal with here as it relates to food. And he's already coming into conflict, ethically speaking, with the people around him. He won't eat the food and drink of the king. Now, we don't know exactly what this particular issue was, this issue of conscience um, that Daniel was dealing with here. Um, but we do see Daniel taking some sort of ethical exception to what was happening here. Um, now, it is important to realize off the bat the text is not prescribing or even giving an example of some sort of biblical diet. Um, in the Christian world today, there are those who have tried to exploit this text and make this into some sort of prescriptive diet. Um, books like The Ultimate Guide to the Daniel Fast, The Daniel Fast for Weight Loss, The Daniel Fast Made Delicious, and The Daniel Plan 40 Days to a Healthier Life. This one's interesting because the days that Daniel asked for the diet or for the trial period of the diet were only 10 days, but somehow they put 40 days in it. So I, I think it just shows that you see the Christian money-making machine constantly exploiting scripture where they can for monetary gain. Um, but some things right off the bat that come that we should keep in mind here. Daniel refrained from eating the king's food and drinking his wine at a moral principle, not because he was attempting to be healthy. This wasn't some sort of westernized diet that he was implementing. He was attempting to obey God with whatever situation that entailed. God was with Daniel and his friends in this endeavor, and it says that Daniel had been given favor by the chief uh, of the eunuchs. So he had favor with his superiors uh, even before this had happened. So God used that to bless Daniel in this way. So what was going on here with Daniel and his friends? Again, we don't really know exactly what it might be. Uh, John Gill gives some possible explanations. It could have been that there was a ceremonial sense that he was taking exception to. Maybe the food they were giving was not consistent with the, the law of Moses in terms of what they should be eating. Um, it could have been that the food was offered to an idol, um, or maybe it was some sort of other unlawful food. Um, but whatever the case, again, the point is, is that Daniel was standing for moral principles as it relates to obeying God. 
I don't think it's important for us to get hung up on what the text might have been about. The point was Daniel was seeking to obey God, whatever the situation was. He kept his moral character and he remained faithful to God even in the midst of this pagan culture. And it makes sense that they were, that food that they were offering them originally had been, was dedicated to pagan gods. Yeah, yeah, it, it very well might have been. He wanted yep. to separate himself from that as much as he could. Yeah, that, that's certainly possible. Although Paul does say that eating food offered to idols isn't, uh, isn't sinful. But that could, have, that could have definitely been a problem, maybe in his own conscience. Uh, maybe he felt he couldn't do that. Um, although it is important to point out in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, uh, this was not a, a continuous thing or an absolute principle that he kept. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3 says, I ate no pleasant food, nor meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel did eat meat and drink wine at some point while he was in exile. Um, so it seems to be a very specific situation that he was dealing with there, but it wasn't uh, something that continued on forever. Another thing that's interesting that we see in this situation is the way that Daniel goes about uh, this request for eating differently than his peers. Daniel doesn't make a scene about it, does he? Daniel doesn't go around and, and throw a tantrum and make a scene about how he's going to do this particular ethical thing and not do what the king wanted him to do. He goes to his superior and asks, not demand, that they be given this exception. And I think this should be a testament to us that, you know, even in our pagan environments that most of us have to work in, surrounded by sinful men, surrounded by the world and the pressures around us, that we should always, as much as possible, show respect to our superiors over us when dealing, even when dealing with ethical issues that we have to come across with in the workplace. When we as Christians take a stand for what is right, our first instinct should never be to, spite, to attempt to spitefully defy authority or to make a scene throwing a tantrum because we don't like what we are being told to do. To be very careful about that. We as Americans love to do things like that, don't we? We love to make a scene. We love to post our arrests on social media because we're defying some mandate or, or whatever the case might be. But is that really the biblical model that we see here that Daniel's doing? He doesn't defy the king. He doesn't defy the chief eunuch. He goes and asks him if he could have this exception and even tries to work with the chief eunuch so that a, a mutually beneficial solution could be given, even though Daniel is taking moral exception here. He humbly and respectfully goes to his superior and asks this. And this is very consistent with what we see like in Ephesians chapter 6. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So there's a, obviously there's, respect for authority that's to be that's uh, embedded in that verse and we see Daniel certainly showing that here while trying to work through these ethical issues that he had to deal with while being in a pagan land and it says that the chief eunuch had great respect for Daniel so much so that he didn't say no you can't eat like this but he he did hesitate because he knew that if this went sideways he would die right he said that you know you're I don't want to put my head in danger or he could lose his head because uh, 
it would reflect poorly on him if they didn't come out the way they were supposed to by eating a different diet. But it shows that Daniel, I think Daniel and his friends had a good reputation with the pagan, uh, with their pagan superiors. And we should also strive to do that, right? We should, in the workplace especially, we as Christians should be, uh, we should be respected by our bosses because we do the work right. We're reliable. We're faithful, right? Like Pastor C has been talking about in the Fruits of the Spirit. We're faithful in those things that God has given us. We will earn the respect of our superiors to some extent. And so it seems like Daniel was faithful in those tasks that he was given and faithful in what he was doing. And so the chief eunuch had respect for him. And so I think that this helped with that request. He had respect for Daniel. And so he didn't just blow Daniel off when he came and asked him for this. It probably seemed strange to them. Like, why we have, we're giving you food. Why are you wanting to change this on us? So Daniel sought to find a mutually beneficial solution. He was acting consistently with Romans 12, 18, that we're to live peaceably with all men as much as it depends on us. Daniel didn't just say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do this. I don't care what you say. I'm, I'm just going to not eat this food. He didn't say that. He tried to find a compromise. Yes, there will be times where there is no other course, where we have to act, but we should seek to find ways that benefit both parties biblically. If we're in a situation where our work is, we're ethically challenged at work, should we not consider the situation that we might put our boss in if we have to take X, Y, or Z route before we just act? Right? Is there a way that we can come to a, a compromise where I don't have to compromise on these biblical, uh, ethical things that I must do, but that doesn't put my superior in a tough situation? That should be our first uh, our first. Uh, thought process as we go through this. Daniel was seeking the good of his neighbor, even in this uh, issue that he had to deal with. We're to live peaceably with all men as much as it depends on us. And then looking at verse, verses 15 through 16 of Daniel 1. And at the end of 10 days, their features appear better and fatter in flesh and all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they were to drink and gave them Vegetables, So it actually turned out better than it would have been if they had remained in the status quo, right? So the chief eunuch's head was uh, protected. He was fine. But Daniel also was able to obey God, and it turned out better for everybody in the process. And sometimes that's the way it works out. As we're obeying God in a pagan world, there is a positive influence that can happen from us obeying God. It's not just um, something that can happen to Christians but we can have a positive influence upon those around us. Um, so it, that's something else to keep in mind as we're going, uh, as we're thinking about how to deal with ethical issues um, in a pagan world. God's common grace was with the Babylonians through Daniel and his friends obeying God. And we see, you know, we see examples of this, like Genesis 41 with Joseph, where Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but he rose to power by being, uh, by being an interpreter of dreams. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and he was put as second in command of Egypt to, over, to oversee that operation of preventing starvation during the seven years of famine. 
So God used Daniel's work, or God used Joseph's work to have a positive influence upon the pagans in the land of Egypt and eventually to bring the people of Israel to Egypt and protect them from starvation. So God worked for Joseph's good and the good of the pagans around him who had enslaved him. All right, let's look at verse 17. Verse 17, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, I want to park here for a little bit. I think this will be um, kind of one of the, the main themes of our discussion today. What does it mean to live in the world but not be of the world? Or what does it mean to live in the world but not be defiled by the world? As we see this happening here, right, we see the covenant people of God who are supposed to be separate from the world are now being forced to live in a pagan situation, learn the pagan ways, learn the pagan literature, and yet we see them still remaining faithful to God, still obeying God's word, and God blessing them there. So how are we to, to understand how we are to live in the world in light of these biblical principles? Well, number one, living in the world is not sinful. Living in the world is not sinful. The people of Israel were to be separate from the, from the world around them. Psalm 106, 34-36, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. That's Psalm 106, 34-36. Now, on the surface, this passage may seem inconsistent given what we see in Daniel. Uh, he and his friends were serving pagans, yet Psalm uh, 106 says, it kind of calls down judgment on those who did not uh, separate themselves, right? We see language similar to this in 2 Corinthians 6.17, which has similarities to Isaiah 52.11, coming out and being separate from the pagan peoples. The pagan peoples were to be destroyed in the land of Canaan, not partnered with, and certainly not to be accepting of idols. Okay, so they were to go in, remember in Joshua, uh, they were to go in and destroy the pagan peoples in Canaan. Um, but that we know uh, from judges that they didn't do that uh, as they should have. So we see very clear direction that the people of Israel were to be separate from the world, separate from the pagan peoples. Yet we see in Daniel's situation, God blessing them in spite of the fact they're among pagans. So, you know, on the surface, this might seem to be a contradiction. How can they do that? I think what we see in Psalm 106, uh, when I looked at different sources, the word mingle can be uh, seen as being associated with pledges and commitments rather than no association whatsoever, although you could interpret that that way. But we don't see Daniel and his friends making pledges, covenants, commitments in the sense that would be prohibited. They were forced into this situation by the Babylonians and were doing what they could in exile. So they weren't mingling with them in order to make covenants with them, in order to say, well, you're one of us. We're going to partner with you. Because what happened with the people of Israel when they did that, they tended to uh, adopt the idolatrous ways of the people around them, right? They would intermarry, and then they would be uh, brought into the paganism and greatly influenced by the, the pagan nations around them. So living in the world, biblically speaking, it's not only permitted, but it's expressly God's will. John 17, 14 through 19, Jesus talks about this in his high priestly prayer. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he's giving this before he's being taken away to be crucified. He's praying for the immediate 11 disciples that were there, specifically about their ministry. But then we know that the prayer broadly applies to all Christians. He talks about those who would believe through the apostles. So this is the will of all of the disciples of Jesus, whether it's the immediate 11 or those who would believe later, that we not come out of the world. We're to be in the world. And how are they to be protected from the wickedness around them? God will protect them from the evil one. Jesus prayed for us on that behalf. This doesn't mean that we won't have any influence of the world around us or that we won't sin But we won't fall away because Jesus said they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. We will remain because our Savior overcame the world. That's the only reason we will not fall away. We've overcome the world in Jesus Christ. Is it 1 John 5, 5? Whoever is in Christ has overcome the world. When we're identified with the Savior, there's no way, no way that we can fall away, no no way that we can fall and into worldliness completely we will gain victory over this world because of what christ did and daniel if we yep. separate ourselves from the world completely how are we to witness to those that need to know the lord all right yeah we can't so we can't be we can't evangelize world, not of the world. yeah we can't evangelize if we're hiding away in our in our uh, hiding away from the world can we Yep, we, we can't do that if we're, if we're separated from it, right? Yep. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, verse 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died in, with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using of them according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul is giving us these practical examples of how we're to live as Christians. We're to be resting in Jesus Christ. This is what he's talked about already previously in verses 11 through 14. We're to rest in Christ. We're not resting in our own works. And what that looks like in the Christian life is not living a life of separation, of self, uh, this self-humiliation, this rejection of certain foods. We're not to live like that. We're, we're in Christ. We have freedom to do those things which are, not, uh, which are not condemned in his word. We can eat foods that are given by God. But there are those who will still show a false humility. And we can see this from those, an, an example of false humility Um, For instance, the ESV renders false humility as asceticism. And I think both, and I'm using the NKJV primarily here, I think both translations kind of carry the idea that there is self-denial going on here that isn't biblical. And you can see this, for example, in the life of a monk who might separate themselves from the world and live, sleep on cold floors and starve themselves and whip themselves, thinking that somehow they're going to be more holy in the eyes of God. 
Yes. Yep. So it's a false humility. It's not, it's not truly humble. It is the gospel or our own self-righteousness. So if we're leaving the world in some sort of false humility to somehow make ourselves right before God, we're lost. We have no gospel. The gospel frees us from foolish things like that, and we can live in the world free to obey God and to be a witness for him. Another point here, gaining knowledge of pagan things is not inherently sinful. Our passage here in verse 17 says that God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge in all literature and wisdom. This was not Hebrew literature. This was the pagan literature of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And it says that God actively gave them that knowledge. God would use Daniel and his friends with this knowledge, with this understanding of the pagan culture around them to bring his glory among the Babylonians. If we look at Mark chapter 7, we can see why this is the case. And he said, what comes out of a man, what that defiles a man, for, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And you can find a parallel passage for this over in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. But Jesus here is discussing what really defiles someone. The Pharisees were all offended because the, his disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. Some silly, petty thing like that. It's something that the Pharisees were very well known for. They're always concerned about what the outside looked like, but never concerned about the heart. And Jesus was correcting them on that. It's, from, it's what comes from within each one of us that defiles us. Me, myself, and I are the problem. Nobody else is the problem. My heart is the problem. That's what defiles me. It's not what I hear. It's not what I see. It's what comes from within. So even these wicked teachings and concepts that may have been found in what Daniel was learning and his friends were learning, they did not defile him because they were not coming from his own heart. Things that come into us do not defile us. That's how we can live in the world and be bombarded by all these things and not be defiled by them. So they saw these things in their proper place under the headship of their Lord submitting to him, and they used them appropriately um, in the place that God have him, had him. So what is a Christian's response uh, to the world? One, we're not to hide in our Christian subcultures. Not to hide in our Christian subcultures as a way of leaving the world. We're not to think that just because the world is doing something, even if it may not necessarily be evil, that we have to do something different. We as Christians love to Christianize everything, don't we? Whatever it might be, we'll have to Christianize it. If the world has Netflix, we need pure flicks. If the world has secular music, we need Christian music. If the world is fiction, we need fiction with Bible characters. We love to do the opposite of everything that the world does, even if it's not necessarily wrong. And that's not to say that there's anything inherently wrong with like a pure flicks or Christian fiction, nor is it to negate the conscience of a believer who is weak as found in Romans 14. But this is to say that we have to be careful that we aren't having knee-jerk reactions to our surroundings, that we don't run for the hills when we see evil in the world, or we fall into violating these principles laid out in Scripture as to living 
in the world. Going to a secular university isn't necessarily sinful. Reading and learning pagan philosophy isn't either. We can take the good and throw out the bad as Daniel and his friends would have certainly done in their state as godly men living in a pagan culture and having to be surrounded by these pagan things around them. Because if we aren't careful, our reaction to the world around us, we may simply trade one worldly thing for another. If I don't want to watch worldly entertainment, want to go after pure flicks or those movies and shows and the latter theologically accurate, am I just simply, you know, I don't want to watch Netflix because it might have profanity and sex, but am I just going to pure flicks with horrible theology? Am I just exchanging one worldly thing for another? Here again, uh, Daniel, I think it, it depends on where our focus is. Mm. If we keep our focus on the Lord, we may watch those things, but they don't consume us. If we take our focus off of the Lord and fill ourselves with nothing but those things, that can make a difference because we've lost where our focus and where our, our uh, where we should be. We should be keeping our eyes upon Jesus. Yeah, and that, that can happen in both. Yep. And concentrate just on worldly yep. things, then we may become consumed. Yeah, but it could happen the other way too, and that's my point. Are, are we just simply exchanging one for the other, or are we really solving the problem? Yes. Yeah, discernment has to be used in both places. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not saying um, that we just run after the world and we uh, completely, uh, you know, we do one or the other. It's having discernment in both places. But we do tend to do this in the Christian world. We do tend to exchange one worldly thing for another, thinking that we're being holy and righteous, but we're really not. Yes, Stuart. It could. Yeah, it could very well, yeah. And I think that goes back to what we're talking about in Colossians 2. We, especially with the lifestyle of, of, say, a monk, right? They're separating themselves from the world because they think they are making themselves more righteous in the eyes of God. But they're not. And Paul even says that what they're doing doesn't do anything to stop the indulgence of the flesh. It actually continues the flesh. They're just doing something else that's worldly. It looks righteous, it looks good, it looks religious, but it's still worldly. Yeah, Matt. No, you're good. And I think we're, we tend to, it's easier to overreact to what we see in the world around us because those things are more black and white. Yes. But things within our own circles, theological distinctions and splitting of hairs that need to be made, we tend to be very poor at that. We tend to embrace theological uh, falsity over, uh, over rejecting of them where we should. So it, it's something that, and it's going to, you know, look different for different people. There's going to be different levels of growth, but that discernment has to be there. Just, be, just because we're in a Christian culture, subculture, does not mean that we're necessarily separate from the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
in profanity or whatever. But if you hear something, it's like, oh, that's a bad word. You can you can tell your children like that's a bad word. Don't say that. Yep. It becomes a much more complicated problem when they're listening to poor theology and you're having to try to explain to them poor theology when they don't understand the right theology to begin with. So it, it, as they grow up, it, it becomes a much more complicated problem when things aren't black and white like what you're talking. About. Yeah, and, and we have to do that, I think, in both worlds. We have to have a healthy uh, teaching of discernment for our children of the secular world because they're going to go out there one day. And if they don't have some sort of preparation for that, um, especially if they're not saved, they're going to run after it because that's where their pagan hearts tend to go. Um, but yes, on the theological side, we need to train our children in these things. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, that we're to uh, raise our child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're to know these things. And as they understand the proper theology, when they see those things in the world too, they're going to know that's bad. Yeah. So it's a balance of both. And, that, and that's not always an easy balance to find, but it's one that we have to strive uh, to find so we don't fall into both pits. Discernment has to be done from both sides. Yep. Um, and this, is, this next point here, talking about what uh, Nancy mentioned earlier, we should be light in this dark world. We can't be light for the world if we are living apart from it. We're commanded to live in the world. We're commanded to teach the gospel to those around us. So we should seek those opportunities, right? Um, Colossians 4 talks about this. Walk in wisdom to toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You can't do that if you're living separate from the world. We're to redeem the time. We're to look for opportunities to tell of Christ to others. And this is also consistent with the charge of the church in Matthew 28, that we are to take the gospel into all the world. The church can't do that if they're separate from the world. This is a big difference that you see in our own tradition as particular Baptists versus the Anabaptists, like the, uh, the Mennonites, etc., who saw separation from the world as what it meant for a Christian's daily life. The particular Baptist said, no, we need to plant churches. We need to evangelize. We need to teach the gospel to those around us. So this, is, uh, this really is it's unorthodox teaching to, to separate ourselves from the world. And again, to, to balance all this out again, living in the world does not give us license to be like the world. James chapter 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we're not to be friends with the world. And the world is, it's those thought processes, those beliefs, those systems of rebellion against God. We're not identifying with those sinful worldly things around us. We're not to adopt its ideas, its unbiblical methods, its love of its wicked sins. And again, we are to associate with unbelievers. Paul talks about this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. But we're not to make, make companions out of them either, Proverbs 13, 20. We should walk with the wise and not make our close friends those who are of this world. Why? Because they can have an influence on our actions and behaviors. Peer pressure can set in, right? Especially if we have close friends and we, we run in a group of companions. We want to be liked, Right? We, we don't want people to be opposed to us, so we want to please those around us. So if we have close friends that are unbelievers, that can be a problem. 
Um, I think this is why we see Paul saying, too, that those who live in sin in the church are to be put outside of the church. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. Right? Why? Because they can have an influence upon us. The covenant people of God are supposed to be unified and, and close together. And if there's someone who's living in unchecked sin in the church, they can have an influence upon those around them. Peer pressure. I could be wrong, but when the scripture talks about not being unequally yoked, I feel like that's not just marriage. That is even friendship. Don't be yoked to an unbeliever. You want to be friendly or friendships have a, a light kind of thing where you can influence them. Once you get yoked together, it's like a lot of channel opens to them to influence you is what I feel like. Yeah, that, that passage could be applicable there. Um, yeah, we, we don't... The, the other thing about that too when we're talking about not having companions of unbelievers, we also don't want to be unloving to the world around us, right? We can be friendly. We can have unbelieving friends, unbelieving associates. We're to not be rude. We're still to love our neighbor. Um, but yeah, I think getting to that point where you start to have this closeness of where they start to influence you in a negative way, that's where it becomes uh, dangerous. One of my manager at work was mocking the Lord right in front of me. And they were speaking about who is like the greatest person in the world. And my manager was like, ha ha, Jesus. And I was like, Yes, you're right. My Lord, yes, you you got it. He is the greatest one in the world. And inside I was so angry, but then praise the Lord because instead I was friendly and I was mm -hmm. praising the Lord. And they both looked at me, they were like, <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, guys. How did you know? And I walked away. <laughs> so yes, we must be friendly with those around us because we are the light of the world. Yeah, and, it, and it, can, it can bring them to shame as well, yeah. right? Jesus, um, I think it was Peter that talked about this, where if we're persecuted and we return kindness for evil, it brings coals upon their head, right? It brings shame upon them. Because what they're, they know what they're doing is foolish and sinful. Yep. All right. I think we'll close there today. Um, there are a few more verses at the end, but I, I think that uh, we hit all the major points that we need to hit today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this, uh, this discussion in your word, Father. And I pray that these things would settle in our minds and our hearts and that we would apply your word to our lives, Lord, and obey. And that we would take these things into the worship service, Lord. That we would worship you in light of uh, being free from this world. That we have overcome the world in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would praise you for that today, Lord, and eat and drink of the supper with your word in our minds and our hearts, and that we would worship you in spirit and truth today, Lord. We pray that you would bless Pastor Steve as he brings us the message, that you would help him to speak clearly, Lord, to speak your truth, uh, truth well, and that you would be glorified in our worship today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.